All right, uh, so we've taught last week, we taught on, uh, we've been talking about chapter four, and what are our takeaways? This is class interaction time. What, yeah, what do we, what did we leave the building understanding, takeaway, um, that we probably previously didn't know or that impacted us in some way, shape, or form? I know it. Just just say it, and I'll repeat it because it's. Yeah. So um, that's a that's a big deal. So let me just say that what we saw was anybody else. That was very good, by the way. Sea of glass. God's mastery over the chaos. And then uh, Jesus walking on the water shows his mastery. And it is actually reflexive of the Proto-Evangelium or the Proto-Evangelium, depending on how you want to say it, which is the, uh, your offspring will, you will bruise his heel and he shall crush your head. And that's a picture when Jesus walks on the water of that thing. So let's draw again because... What we have to understand is, is that we tend to see Revelation, we tend to still read it as a storybook. So when we read it, we still tend to read it as a storyline event, which means we think events follow one right after the other. All right, and that's, it's just the way we read and it's the way we think. We think very linear, we, we move in linear fashions, time is linear, and so we read many times that way but when we come to apocalyptic literature we have to understand that we're li- we're looking at layers so we have to be able to as it were start again continually start again restart the picture or add to what's already been given and that's a big deal because in recapitulation what we have is we have a lot of additions being made different perspectives how many of you read the, four, the, the, the three gospel accounts in John as one long story? Do you do that? No. Why? That's exactly what Revelation is. Alright? So for you to read the, the, the accounts of the gospels in one long line, it, it, it's odd to read it that way. As a matter of fact, you have four different people. Right? Or three different people and one who theologizes about the one person. John. If you do that with Revelation, you get the same conundrum. You get oddities that begin to form. Things that don't line up. So it's very important that we realize that like we would not read the three Gospels, the three synoptics, in a single storyline, we can't do that with Revelation. And in this picture, the chapter breaks create what is called a what we we what we do in our mind is make a mental break so we will make a subconscious mental break between five four and five and we have to be careful and and there's another place where a verse break in chapter five will also detract from the point okay so the remember always that the chapters and verses are aftermarket additions 
All right? They were not included in the original. It was a letter. And it was read as such. We, like when we sit down to read Revelation, we go, I'll read chapter 4 today. Right? I'll just read chapter 4. And then we try to process what chapter 4 is saying in its own context. Can't do that. I would suggest to you that if you ever want to just sit down and read Revelation, read it all. Read it all the way through. You can pull different sections out, but unless you are really fully capable of understanding the way that Revelation is written, it's better to read it all at one time than to take bits and pieces because then you compartmentalize what John is trying to say and that does damage to the overall picture. So, last week we had what? Oh, by the way, interesting point. You said something about the sea and it being calm as glass. What was, the, what was Matthew's teaching last week? Where'd the pigs run? Straight to the sea. They went home. The demons entered the pigs and they went right to the sea. They just went home. Pretty cool, huh? So, so if you understand the symbology of what's being said throughout the Scripture... Uh, in Revelation, all of a sudden the rest of Scripture just comes, wow, alive. It just comes alive. So um, we're going to jump into chapter 5, um, and I'm going to say a couple things. But first, before I do that, let's draw again the picture, because again, this is a layer. This is the same picture with a layer. 5 is, is not a break or a different vision than 4. It is an overlay of chapter 4. All right? So what you have is you have, like we drew last week, and I'm, nope. We have the throne, <laughs> right? There you go. And you have, um, I'm just going to draw wavy lines here because it's, let's do this. Let's, let's do radiate. No. Yeah, I know. I'm... <laughs> If I studied art as much as I read, I'd probably be okay at this. Um, so we have like a radiant a radiation that comes out. Remember that John did not even try to describe the being on the throne. All he did was say he there appeared a radiance around the throne that was like what Jasper and Ruby. Okay, and then what came from the throne were peals of lightning, uh, lightning peals of thunder. And some, con some say voices, but remember, voices, um, I heard the waters that sounded like many, waters that sounded like many voices, or voices that sound like many waters. So there's this, it's a, it's a picture, all right? So you have lightning, well, whatever, okay? And then around the throne, you have what? You have four living creatures, and I'll just put four like this, four living creatures, and I'm making it too big. So I'll just do it this way. You have a, the throne, its radiance, lightning and whatever. You have the four living creatures around the throne, and I'm not going to try to draw wings on them. All right, and then you have the 24... 
13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, 24. 24 thrones around the throne, smaller thrones, which represents the church, right? A lot of people say they're angelic beings. I don't necessarily agree with that because it's never said that angelic beings get to wear a golden crown and sit on thrones with Christ. So, for what angel did you say, today I will make you my son, right? So, um, I have a problem with commentators that say, oh yeah, that's, you know, these are angels. I, I just think they're heavenly symbol, symbolisms, heavenly beings that symbolize the church. We, I'm not going to name them because the Bible doesn't. It calls them elders. Um, and then over all of this, in front of this you have a sea of glass, Glass, I'll just say that. And then over everything is what? The emerald rainbow, which signifies new creation, right? And so um, what we have here is um, a picture of the one who sits on the throne as the center of and the Lord of creation. And his sovereignty is over all, even over the chaos that we see around us. Again, this must be understood. Oh, and this area in here is the heavens. At Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heavens because this is a picture of creation. It's very important that we keep in mind that this is a picture of creation because the significance of the lamb that appears in this picture that we're about to see must appear in the context of creation. That's something that's very important. Hebrews picks up on this. And so does Paul in Colossians. Okay? So, and we'll, we'll talk about that in a minute. But it's very important that we understand that this symbolizes creation. And remember, God doesn't need space to dwell in. So before creation, was the Bible's clearly said in the beginning, there was nothing. The Bible doesn't actually say that. But in the beginning, there was nothing. It was a void. Well, that was the void was created. Void implies spherical nothingness. Before, before God created, there was not even nothing. Now, this is something we can't comprehend. All right? So this is one of those mysteries. So God does not need space to dwell in. I know that's very hard for us. So when we think about these visions, we think, oh, that's God's home. No, this is the creation of God. God doesn't need space. But because the heavens, so when Genesis 1 says, in the beginning of God created the heavens and the earth, he's talking about the spiritual and the temporal. He abides in the spiritual because he is spirit. So basically what God did was when he enters now creation and he enters into the realm of creation, he does so in this capacity. In a heavenly I don't know what to call it, actually. In a heavenly capacity or a spiritual capacity that is called, Genesis 1-1, the heavens. All right? So it still represents a created aspect, a, a, a part of the created order. Okay? So this is the heavens up here. All right? That's an H. And we had said that the rainbow represents new creation, which is an eschatological thing. So what we see here is... Creation, all of it, in its glorified state, 
as heaven perceives it. Okay? The church is glorified. The glass, the sea is calm at this point, right? Still not chaotic, although we live in chaos. The 24 elders are glorified. They're seated on their thrones. They have their crowns, right? The rainbow is now um, emerald, thank you, which is always directly, directly related in Scripture to God's glory, all right? So, and there is no death, sin, or anything involved in this particular picture. Susan. The color emerald, or the, or the stone emerald, or the color emerald is always equated, well, not always, but it's the only stone in Revelation of the three that are mentioned, the only color in Revelation that is mentioned in this particular context that's directly equated with God's glory. Okay? Um, so, anyway, so that's the picture that we had in verse 4. Now, verse 5 comes along, and we're going to start adding to this picture. Chat, what I say? Whoops. Chapter 5. Introduction. Let's skip through the introduction. You guys got your notes? Yes. Here last week. Well. What were the, I know, my, my bad. Demerit. <laughs> um, what are the, what's the lightning for? The, the lightning represents the judgments of God. And it, it, it's a, it's a, a sinaitic or sinaitic, depending on how you want to say it, picture of when the, when the glory cloud of God def- descended on Sinai, there were peals of thunder and lightning. It always represents God's judgment. Awesome judgment. Yes. Um, so why, if this is a picture of everything being glorified, why is judgment coming out? Because I don't understand that. God's judgment is an attribute of who He is that remains constant throughout eternity, just like His love. Love doesn't cease because things are glorified. Judgment we always equate as being some kind of wrath thing. Judgment in God's economy is to speak what is true, to designate what is right. Okay? So what He does is He says, when He passes judgment on you, what does he say about you? When he judges you in Christ, what does he say about you? You are righteous and in my son. That's a pretty loving judgment. And we have to start equating God's judgment in that capacity over us. Okay? It's not something to fear back from. It's not something to pull away from. It is a declaration of what is. And so God's judgment, when he speaks over you and he judges you, he says, you are my son, you are my daughter, I am, I, I, you are my beloved. I have forgiven you. These are God's judgments. These are his statements of truth over you. Okay? Does that make sense? Now, it's really easy for us to immediately say, oh, I'm under God's judgment. And everybody in the room will go, oh, he's getting creamed. <laughs> but what does the scripture say in Hebrews? That he does what to those he loves? That's right. So there's always that equation with love and justice. And I will tell you this, that redemption is un- incomplete without judgment. Redemption cannot, cannot be without judgment. Does Jesus ever not appear as a slain lamb throughout eternity? The answer to that is no. He retains his hu- human glorified body with the marks 
of what he has done because it harkens back to God's righteous judgment. And that will be for us a sign through eternity. Does it make sense? That was a good question. Good thing I studied that. I'm kidding. Um, (laughs) All right. Despite the artificial breaks in the narrative caused by chapter designation, chapter 5 is simply a, I don't like the word continuation, but an overlay of chapter 4. The two are contiguous, and they are, um, uh, yeah, I guess that's a good word. Uh, They are overlaying, they overlap, they, they, they develop further the same picture. And they are somewhat linear, and we'll understand why, because what it represents when Jesus arrives on the scene is a moment in time. What is that moment in time? Remember what Galatians says, at just the right time. What is that moment in time when Jesus appears? What is it depicting? The incarnation. The incarnation and the work of Christ on the earth. So Jesus' appearance in this picture is that moment where the triune God, oh, one thing I did forget. Before the throne are the seven torches. One, two, three, five, six, seven. Which is important because those now take on a different role when the Son of Man, as Daniel puts him, appears. And we'll talk about that as we get there, okay? Okay. As we have stated, chapter 4 depicts the God of creation and His sovereign rule, authority, and control over all, all aspects thereof. Um, in chapter 5, the Lamb slain from the foundations of the earth, the incarnate Son of God appears or is introduced in the vision recorded in chapter 4. Uh, there are several initial points of significance to consider here. Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being. Remember, in John's first vision He sees an indescribable on the throne. And he doesn't give it a description. He just says the one who sits on the throne. There is no description. He doesn't even name him. And I told you why he doesn't name him. Do any of you remember? Yeah, the Hebrews did not want to, did not, Say the name of God out of reverence and fear, especially with regards to his throne. Okay? Um, Jesus is, okay, so Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. So that's important to understand and keep in mind. In these two chapters, the one who sits on the throne is never described directly, nor does John or any other heavenly being identify him by any moniker or name. However, when the incarnate Son of God appears in chapter 5, he is announced by the mighty angel as the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, and depicted in terms of a recognizable image. And what does John say of God? What does John say of God, yes, in chapter 1 of his, of his gospel? And we beheld his glory. This is what John is seeing. Something that's indescribable became describable. Something that we can't fathom became depicted before him. The ineffable became describable. And Jesus simply said to his disciples, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Ah, cool picture. 
Um, all right. Um, additionally, included in these two passages, just mentioned the son depicted here as the lamb is the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, in, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is therefore appointed heir of all things. So in all of this, then, we see a direct link between what? Original creation, and we're going to say this again and again, creation is directly connected to what? Redemption, restoration. Redemption, which in turn is directly related to new creation. Okay? So we like to break this up. We like to say, well, it was originally created like this, and then it fell, and then God had to send his son and die on the cross, and we compartmentalize, and, and then so that we can later on Enter into new creation. All of this was in the mind of God when he did this. Okay? So to break it up like that is, I think, does damage in our own mind. To the, to the, it's almost like, well, you know, God wasn't really expecting us to fall. Yeah, he was. <laughs> it didn't surprise him. It wasn't like, oh, now what do we do? Jesus, son, come here. We've got to work up a plan. <laughs> yeah, about a flood. <laughs> That'll teach him. Um, there's a theology taught in the seminaries now that speaks that exactly what you just said it's called open theology yeah where he's surprised yeah god is reacting to everything right yeah that elevates the sovereignty of man to a place where god does nothing but react it's called open theology if you guys ever read anything about open theology just move it aside it's heresy. Um, it, it, it is only the God who is sovereign. And this is the key, what we're seeing here. It is, the only, it is only the God who is sovereign over his creation that has the power and authority to redeem that creation. Okay? And Hebrews tells us that because of that, the Son had to be made like his brothers. Had to. Otherwise, the scroll would still remain sealed. It's important, all right? Uh, verse 1, ready? You guys ready? Here we go. And then I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne the scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. Seven seals. Hey, hey there's the number seven again. All right, so in this picture, what we have now is out of from a being that is not described in any way, shape, or form, all that's described is as an effulgence or his radiance now all of a sudden from this being john sees a right hand all right so i'm going to draw a hand here <laughs> whatever so he sees a right hand there you go looks like a crown looks like one of those cartoon characters whatever hand i don't know how to draw a hand how about I just write hand? Okay. So, in this picture now, from a being that he cannot describe and gives no description of, all of a sudden there's a hand. Now, is there really a hand? Does God have a hand? Does he sit on a throne? Is the throne representative of something that is, that is God's attribute? We talked about this. Yes. What is it? 
Sovereignty, authority, right? What's the right hand? Does Jesus actually sit on God's right hand in heaven? So there's this being that sits on a wood throne that looks like rubies, and then there's like a smaller version of him sitting on the right side on like the armrest there? No. It's a picture that's given to us to represent something that's true about God. So now, God in his infinitude and in his wisdom decides that he's going to show, has made the decision that he will show something to John about, about himself and about what he's going to do. And he lets John see a hand, as it were, and it's a right hand. And how many of you understand what right hand symbolizes throughout Scripture? Power. Omnipotence. It's actually said in the scripture that he sat down at the right hand of the power. Okay? So, all right. So, uh, previously, as we've just said, John makes no attempt to describe him who sat on the throne. However, here John sees a right hand of God like the throne, the image of God's right hand uh, that John is allowed to see as a symbol of an attribute. It's that of omnipotence. And that's important to understand that it's omnipotence because in the hand... Actually, it's not held, it's actually laying on the right hand's palm is a scroll, and we'll get to that in a second. Um, The scroll and its contents originates and are under the control of the sovereign omnipotence of the one who sits on the throne. That's important. In the hand is a scroll. I don't know how to even try to draw a scroll. I'll just draw it like this with one, two, three, four, five, six, seven little seals on it, right? So in the hand is a scroll. Uh, G.K. Beale states that the scroll here represents the judgments of God. This is based on the direct uh, allusion to the imagery of Ezekiel 2, 9, and 10, where it said, Then I looked and I saw a hand stretched out to me. In it was a scroll which he unrolled before me. On both sides of it were written words of lament and mourning and woe. Okay. However, the scroll also is described as being sealed with seven seals, which many believe demonstrate it to be the very scroll of Daniel 12. So this is very important, and this is why I say Revelation is actually the capstone of the canon. It it, it actually refers back to everything in Scripture. So this scroll that we'll see not only refers back, but it's the same scroll that John eats in chapter 10. Um... This scroll is the very scroll that Ezekiel sees and the one that is sealed by Daniel. Seal up these things until the time of the end. Well, Jesus' incarnation, everybody that wrote Old New Testament Scripture understood that once Jesus rose from the dead, we entered into what? The church age, which is? The end times, or the last days. John, the directive to Daniel, seal up these scrolls. Seal up these, the scroll until when? And, and there we are. Okay. This particular part, remember what I said, it's, it's, it's not necessarily linear. It depicts in the eternal, uh, this is a very hard thing to understand. Jesus was slain from the foundations of the world. That's what Scripture says. But in time, 
It was a specific event, right? In that time when Jesus was incarnate, he also was crucified, entered into the tomb, which was his Sabbath rest, and was resurrected into the new week or the year of Jubilee, which is the new creation, behold, all things are new, at a particular point in time. But Jesus stands... As the lamb that was slain from the foundations of the earth, about to be handed a scroll that has been in the mind of God eternally. Now, is it a real scroll? Does God write things down on a piece of papyrus and wait for his son to come along and go, hmm, let's do this? No, this is a representation of the plan of God for all of this. Okay? So, yes, the answer to your question is, it's linear. And it's eternal. Alright? So we have to keep that conundrum, that mystery going in our, in our brain. How, how, how did you come to Jesus at a particular time in your life? Yes. But you've been chosen from the foundations of the world. So in God's economy, you've been his since before you were. That's a weird statement. Here's another statement that I always like to say that blows me away. It should blow you away that as long as there's been God, you've been loved. <laughs> now, if that doesn't wonk you out, then you should probably check your emotions. But in this particular time, he steps into time. Now, see, that's a debate, actually. That's a theological debate, because there are theologians that claim that God operates by God time. Because he has created a tangible world that's governed by time, when God steps into it, he actually functions in the thing called God time. Now, I don't want to get into all of the physics of what that is. I actually have a book on it. And it's, it's hard to read. Because it was written by a Christian physicist who tries to apply what it would actually mean for God to be outside of time. And his conclusion is, with our understanding, that's an impossibility. But with God, maybe not. <laughs> All right? So anyway... So the idea is, is what I want to try and say to you guys is that this is the eternal plan of God, but it does constitute what is, 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 is his creation. Now his creation is in time. And so what Jesus is doing here is within the con context of time. However, it has been decreed and actually mandated from all eternity. So they both overlay. So there's an eternal decree that actually has a, a specificity in the created order. Okay? So. And again, we, we see a linear pro, uh, projection with the whole book of Revelation. There is the churches, which is all about the church age. And then we move into the wrath of God, which happens during the church age. And everything is moving toward new creation. But what we see here is that in heaven, all of this is already realized from a heavenly perspective. Very mind-boggling. And I don't want to get caught up in all of that. But what I want to say is, is that 
there are times in, in, the, in the revelation where we understand things to be this happens and then this happens. The hail fell and men did cry out because of the hail. So one precipitated the other. So to say men cried out before the hail fell doesn't really work. So I don't want to get exclusive in the statement. What I'm trying to do is get us from reading the book is, oh, the trumpets went and then came the woes and then came a thousand year reign. Because once we start doing that, we get into dispensationalism. It's very easy to fall into that, okay? So it's hard. It's a hard concept, but what we're talking about is time, not time. Eternity, eternity not eternity. So, uh, way I view it is that you know, God is omnipresent. That includes the time as well as space. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. Same. No. Yeah. So that's, So he permeates his created order. Right. Yeah. And here's something trippy that I've always tried to show you guys. If you took a water bottle like this, this this is how a good way to represent. This is how God sees things. You take a water bottle like this, and you put a line through it and you let that line represent time and and I know I'm, I'm aggrandizing myself but say I'm God and there's I know right uh, all right and, and in this in this in this bottle is a line right okay so at the beginning of the time is Adam and Eve right about here is the incarnation right about here, Susan, is you. And then right here is the end of all things. Where is God throughout that entire timeline? Right here. Is he changing? Is he at a different place? Is he different at any time during that timeline? Does he see the whole timeline at the same time? That's God. So if you can explain how that works, you should write a book. Because you'll make a lot of money. But that's God. And so those are the kind of concepts that we're dealing with. God is outside of time, but he's in time. God is constant throughout time, but he works within time. Okay, so I don't want to get really caught up in all of that, but because it's very, very difficult concept and it is a mystery. And it's like trying to explain three beings in one. It's, it's something that you can't understand. So what I want to say is that God gives us pictures that do draw certain timelines within the context of the recapitulation concept that Revelation is talking about. Okay, So there are events. But they happen uh, contiguously or, uh, or consecutively. When we talk about the, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, they don't, the first horseman doesn't ride out and kill a whole bunch of people and then ride off the stage so that the next guy comes... From the other side, then rides on and then, you know, affects all the crops and then rides off. And then the next guy rides in. They're contiguous. They're consecutive. He opens the four seals and the four horsemen are loose and they go throughout the land. And they work their assigned tasks throughout the church age. Do we see wars and rumors of wars? Do we have pestilence? Is there death? Yes. Because the four horsemen of the apocalypse have been released when this scroll was opened 
at the beginning of the church age. And we see these things happening because they are last day's truths. Does that make sense? So these movies that depict, you know, like this, riding out, swatting everybody with a sword, and then he rides off into the sunset, and then another horse comes along. If you read Zechariah, which is where a lot of this comes from, you'll see that he sends the horses out all at once to the four corners of the earth. Okay, so. Any more questions with regards to physics? You have a question? Here you go. Uh, so how are the wars and rumors of wars and all the things that happened during the church age, how is that different from before the church age? Because there were wars and pestilence and all these things before mm -hmm. that happened. I would say, uh, you know, I'm not really... Uh, that's a good question. It is connected to that. That's a good point, Bob. It is connected to the ultimate judgment of God, and I'm repeating that for the people at home. Um, it is directly connected to God moving things toward new creation, to God bringing everything that was before. And we're going to see why these things didn't happen before, because redemption was not in play. These are parts of God's redemption. Previously, it was God was not redeeming the earth previously man was attempting to redeem himself that's what the law demonstrates oh you want to do things on your own we want to be like god said eve as she took a big bite out of the tree god said fine you can do your do, do it yourself and we sing a song that says no one can save himself right but for however many years throughout uh, the history of mankind did we not try and God gave us a law. He said, okay, if you're going to save yourself, you have to do this. And what is that a picture of? What is the law a picture of? The righteousness of God. Can any man attain to the entirety of the righteousness of God? The answer is no. So you cannot save yourself. So up until this particular point in linear history, there is no redemption. There's only pictures of it through sacrificial lambs, Paschal Passovers, sacrifices, or Abraham seeing into the future, or Jacob's ladder, which is a picture of redemption. So all of these are pictures moving forward. Abraham and the lamb, he was going to sacrifice his son, and what did, what did the scripture say? The Lord has provided for you a lamb or a goat or whatever it was okay so um that's a good question but it has to do with redemption it has to do specifically with god's wrath and his love now this is what we want to we want to we want to make sure that we understand yes there's a lot of outpouring of god's wrath on rebellious and sinful world but intermixed with that are pictures of the heavenly retinue and of the saints of god who are receiving the blessings. Remember in the one where the angel has two censers, he has the censer of the prayers of God that he holds before the throne room, and then he takes another censer and throws it to the earth. So both are equated in what God is doing. 
his judgment on fallen nature, all designed initially toward repentance and his care and love and sustaining of his own throughout this whole thing. And prior to this, I'll just say it like this, Susan, maybe this is the best way to say it. Prior to this event in history, everything leading up to it pointed to it. Types and shadows. Even wars and rumors of wars pointed to the end. Israel being engaged in conflict is a picture of what we're about to see in the church being persecuted. Church in war. So everything leads up in the Old Testament to this, and everything after this, New Testament, points to what? New creation, okay? All right, questions? Um, I don't even know if I can state it accurately, but what you're saying reminds me of the time that the saints reign on the earth, and I just think of Christianity as the, the, the moral foundation for so much of what became the first world because of the order that came in with it. And before that, there wasn't, other than in, in Israel, um, there wasn't the kind of godly order in any civilization. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting to me that that order is so much under attack and is so much being resisted and, and torn down during this time. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, it, it's just like my, my wheels are just spinning right yeah. now. Yeah, so here's another picture. And this, is, this opens up a different context. It's really not a part of this discussion, but I'm going to say it anyway. Prior to the incarnation of God, there was only one nation that knew of God. God chose one nation. And so the rest of the world was involved in idolatry. It was dark. Remember what happened in prior to the flood. Every thought of every man continually was evil. The heart of every man was wicked. There was only one group of people that God chose out of the earth. And Satan was right when he said to Jesus at the, at the, at the temptation, all of this has been given to me, and I'll give it to you. What happened, though, when Jesus died and, resurrection, uh, and resurrected? Go, therefore, because all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, into all the earth and preach the gospel. So Jesus took it back. And when we talk about Satan being loosed again in Revelation, what we're talking about is a, basically a return back to the Old Testament order. When, as in the days of Noah. As a matter of fact, Jesus says that it will be like as in the days of Noah. Okay? So, this is what, what we see here. We see everything pointing to redemption that had not yet 
been accomplished. And all of this is types and shadows. Israel is a type of the church. Um, You've got the Ark of the Covenant, which is a type of the uh, Holy of Holies. You have all of these different pictures, these types. And uh, there's a picture that I was going to get to today that I'm not, um, but we'll talk about it next week. All of them are types and shadows until the reality has come. Who is Jesus? And now at this point, we're now moving in redemptive history toward the fulfillment or the consummation of what has been inaugurated here. Okay, and that inauguration is in fact a linear point in time. Because Paul clearly says, at just the right time. Jesus came born of a woman born under the law. Okay, yes. What? No, there's, this is the age of redemption. But you're talking about the full consummation of? That happens when Jesus returns at this point. Then the consummation of what we all have a deposit of now becomes reality. It, what we have is a deposit. We look forward to, yeah, we look forward to, the Old Testament people looked forward to the first coming. We also look forward to the coming of Christ. So there is even a type and shadow in that. Okay? Verse 2. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? All right, this is important. Angelic spokesperson. This is like the angel of Daniel 4. The angel here functions in the role of divine spokesman for the heavenly council. And he's depicted as mighty. And there's a reason why that is. Um, We will see that this is a recurring theme. It's very possible that this same angel pops up again in chapter 10. And actually hands what is called at that point the little scroll to John to eat. Which is a picture back of Revelation 1. 1b and 2 okay so we'll get to that in a minute um the angel here also is described as mighty most commentators suggest that this description is important here because his voice must be heard throughout all of creation and that the proclamation is repetitive in nature so what we have is in john's vision all of a sudden an angel a very strong buff looking angel steps up and he's and he is proclaiming, not that he announces one time, but he repetitively pro- proclaims in a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And he does so perpetually. He does so continually. And that shout rings out. Now, this is why this is important, that this picture throughout the entire created order, not just to the heavenly council, it is a proclamation to all of creation. Who is worthy? And the silence after he says it is very important. Why? Because no one is found. Not any man, not any angel, not any demon, not anything in all of creation. Nothing in all of creation is worthy to open the scroll. Which goes back here to the Old Testament attempts for however many thousands of years to redeem ourselves. Oh, you want to be like me? Here's the, here's the rules. Well, we can't do this. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So, who's worthy to open the scroll? Nobody here. Okay. 
All right. So um, I think that the mighty angel appears, um, especially in chapter 10. Um, I think it's better to understand the, rep the angel as, a, as represents a representative of God. As a matter of fact, many people, many, many commentators will suggest that this is actually the embodiment of Christ, that this angel is a depiction of Christ. I disagree with that because I feel like that the mighty angel is actually a spokesperson for the sovereignty and the omnipotence of the all-powerful God. Therefore, he appears because he is a spokesperson and because he does declare the omnipotence of God, he appears as mighty. Okay, so that's my own personal feeling. He is then a divine agent acting on behalf of God and the Lamb. That Jesus uses certain angels to represent him in John's visions will become explicit in Revelation 22.16. When he says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony to the churches. So Jesus does use angelic mediation to convey his messages. And this is what this being is. A mighty angel that represent that is the representative of the holy council of God who stands in creation and declares who is worthy to open the scroll and there is no one that's found and John weeps. And why does John weep? Because at this point the hope of Israel remains sealed. Creation must remain as it is. There is no redemption for fallen man. There is no rectification of injustice. There is no declaration of all of the promises that the Jews, the Jewish people were hoping for throughout the Old Testament. As long as that seal remains scroll, uh, scroll remains sealed, every promise in the Old Testament was cut off. And that's what John knows. John understood that scroll to be the scroll of Daniel and to be the scroll of Ezekiel. He understood that this is the scroll that represents God's purpose and plan for eternity. He understood that this, plan, that this scroll represented redemption, both judgment and mercy. John understood that. And when no man, was, no one was found worthy to open the scroll, John wept. Have you ever wept tears of absolute hopelessness? There are some of you that might have, or that may have, might have, that may have. There is a feeling that happens when you hit a place of absolute hopelessness that I can guarantee you, if any one of you says, yes, I've cried hopeless, uh, tears of hopelessness, you can't define that. There is an emptiness that, that happens inside of you that you cannot put words to. It is an uncontrollable feeling of absolute pointlessness powerlessness and that's what john is feeling at this moment so the scripture says he wet he weeps unabashedly uncontrollably because no man is found and next week because i have to stop there is one that is worthy all right so we'll leave it at that and that's the end of the lesson. We'll pick it up next week.